This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Albert Flynn de Silver. Albert is an internationally published poet, memoirist, novelist, speaker, and workshop leader. He served as Marin County's first poet laureate from 2008 to 2010, and his work has appeared in more than 100 literary journals worldwide. He's the author of the book Beamish Boy, a memoir, Letters to Early Street, and Walking Tooth and Cloud. With Sounds True, Albert Flynn de Silver has written a new book called Writing as a Path to Awakening, a year to becoming an excellent writer and living an awakened life, where he invites the reader on a year-long journey of growth and discovery to enhance writing through the practice of meditation while using the creative process to accelerate spiritual evolution. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Albert and I spoke about the difference between the creative pursuit of writing and writing as a path to awakening. We also talked about how the best writing comes from our body, how discipline is what Albert calls an inside job, and Albert's discovery that time is something you create. We also talked about exploring our own death through writing exercises, allowing failure to be our handmaiden, and finally, how showing up for this moment is an audacious act. Here's my conversation on writing as a path to awakening with Albert Flynn de Silver. Albert, in your new book, Writing as a Path to Awakening, you talk about two huge themes that I think are quite important to listeners of Insights at the Edge. One is this idea of spiritual awakening, and the other is bringing our voice forward, our gifts forward in service to other people. So let's just jump right in and begin with this idea of spiritual awakening. You know, I hosted at one point a series called Waking Up, What Does It Really Mean? And one of the things I realized is that different spiritual teachers mean a lot of different things when they use this term spiritual awakening. So let's start right there. What does spiritual awakening mean to you? <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like defining God, isn't it? Um, how do you do that? I think for for me, spiritual awakening has to do with with transcending this sense of separation and difference, and it it means waking up to the vitality and brilliance of the universe that is our true nature. And you know, so for so much of my life, I went through 
kind of trapped in the mind, trapped in the thinking mind, in the perceiving and believing mind. And and then for me, the awakening, awakening experience was this blending in with the world and this, this melting away of all these separations that I made between myself and other people, um, myself and my emotions, myself and the sensations of the body, myself and my creativity. Everybody else had it. I did not. Um, and ultimately myself and the universe. Um, so it's, for me, it's it's that waking up to that, that realization of that complete and utter merging with the universe. Like Walt Whitman said, don't be afraid of the merge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that just resonated so deeply for me for me as I as I began to wake up, you know, as I began to become more integrated and connected mm-hmm. to the world. Now, some people when they talk about spiritual awakening will describe a moment in time, something that happened to them that left them mm-hmm. forever changed. And other people yeah. will say no, it was more like a gradual dawning and it's a process I'm still in. How would sure. you respond to that? For me, it's both and. Um, you know, I, it's been a slow evolution of transcending uh, a very difficult childhood and, uh, you know, transcending abuse and addiction, um, suicidality, uh, and finding my, my place in the world, my voice in the world. Uh, but I did have a series of, you know, what you might call kind of awakening experiences when I finally connected with the practice of meditation and mindfulness and, and embodied silence. And, you know, the, the most sort of famous one in my mind and my bodily recollection is uh, being on retreat, at, uh, on an eight-day retreat with the Thai uh, meditation master, Ajahn Jamnian. And I had been sitting and walking for several days, um, just completely obsessed with the chatter in my head and the, the grief states and the sensations and the discomfort and the frustrations. Uh, and finally just went out for a, a walk up in the canyon. And this was at Spirit Rock. And, um, and I, I, I walked into this creek bed and, and laid down. And I was just sort of going to take a nap. But I, I, I was so sort of conditioned <laughs> at that point to reflecting inward and practicing Ajahn's body scans that I just sort of went into this lying down meditation. And there was this extreme release after a point of just, all I can describe it is just energy, just like lifting out of my body, Um, something very dark and sticky, just like removed and all kinds of sort of horrific images uh, came with that as if in a sort of a waking dream. Um, And I describe a lot of this in, uh, in my memoir and actually some of it in the new book. And and then I just found myself experiencing this incredible lightness and release and wound up just weeping, weeping into the stones and the rocks at this riverbed. And, uh, and there was something that had shifted there, something that had been given away and surrendered 
to the earth and to the universe at large. And I felt a lightness and a beauty that I had never felt before. And so that was a moment in yeah. time. Yeah. And yet, you know, I had to come back after the retreat and clean the house and, you know, integrate back into my relationships and neighbors and friendships and all that. And, you know, all that sort of goes, you know, you sort of, you kind of sort of get sucked back into physical reality. Um, and it took me a few years to realize that it's not about the experience, however spiritual and magical it might be. It's it's more about integrating that into the physical plane of reality. I think a lot of people have experiences like that that then fade and become memories. Mm-hmm. And so what in that left you changed, if you will? Wow, that's a great question. It's, it's sort of that thing where, uh, like... Uh, I forget who it was. Maybe it was Nisargadatta Maharaj who says that once you, once you give yourself fully, once you surrender fully, once you let go completely and absolutely, then you're just never the same person again. You just always know that there's this within you, there's this, this spaciousness, this sense of presence, this sense of possibility and surrender that's always there. It sort of never leaves you, and you can always return to it, um, no matter how re-entwined you get with the physical world. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you come back to the practices, as long as you return to the practices. And that's what I love about doing this book, is that it's, it's all about that. It's all about coming back over and over and over and over again. Because we forget. Coming back over and over again to the practice of meditation and also the practice of writing. Yes. Yes. Which leads me to where I want to go here, which is writing as a path to awakening versus all the other kinds of writing that people are interested in. I want to write a novel. I want to write this or that. What orientation, if you will, makes writing a path to awakening versus just a creative pursuit? I think it's the orientation of openness, of possibility. Um, And I don't think it's, you know, we tend to want to categorize and and make little separate compartments for all these genres of writing, all these types of writing, spiritual writing or journal writing um, or novel writing. Um, To me, it's all just writing. And it's, it's always been parallel and complementary to my spiritual work and the spiritual path for me. And whether I've been writing poems, which I did for 13 years, almost exclusively, uh, and which, you know, no one read, which I didn't really have much of an audience for. I mean, I published a little bit, and I had a small community in San Francisco and New York, but it wasn't about that. It was just about this experiment of of a larger communication and a larger relationship through language and finding one's voice. Um, And then that that shifted into writing memoir, writing my story. Like, what is my story? I I somehow felt obligated, not obligated, that's not the right word, um, inspired, um, moved to to write my story, to, to get it what 
what was what happened in my life, my young life, that that took me near death so many times. What was that story? And the only way I could let go of it was through the process of writing about it. Um, and now it's it's nonfiction in this book, um, and now it's also novels. I've been writing novels the last three or four years and having a lot of fun with that. And so I don't think it, you know, writing as a path to awakening is not necessarily spiritual writing per se. I mean, all writing is spiritual writing. That's my experience. Well, I think there are certain sort of interesting Maybe there are paradoxes we'll see as we talk here, but we can start with something like storytelling. And what I mean is paradoxes where the path of awakening and the path of the writer could be in conflict, but you seem to experience it as whole and congruent. So when it comes to something like storytelling, you know, there'll be many spiritual teachers who will say, drop below the story. Just drop the story. Don't be interested in the story. The story is not going to get you any place. Pay attention to physical sensations. Just come back again and again. Drop the storyteller. And yet you're helping people drop below and tell their stories. So talk about that paradoxical, if you will, approach that's part of writing as a path to awakening. Yeah, so I I think it's actually the opposite in a certain way. So embrace the storyteller fully. Accept the storyteller. Go into the storyteller with complete abandon. Leave nothing unexposed, nothing unexpressed. And, And then go to the other side, that which makes the storyteller possible, that which makes the story possible. And if you keep going, you wind up back at that vast, mysterious, empty space of possibility. I think where people get hung up is that they stop at the story. They become entranced with the story. And they're like, oh, this is so interesting, or it's so brilliantly written, or it's so... Like the characters are so luscious and delicious and yummy and, you, you know, so instead of seeing the story for what it is as a, as a transformational catalyst. Mm-hmm. So how would somebody not fall into that trap of staying on the surface of the story? I love the story. There you go. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's where the, the practice of mindfulness and meditation comes in and the practice of an embodied meditation, um, not just you know sitting in silence, although that's part of it, but really delving into the full experience of an embodied writing. So the writing isn't coming from the mind and the ideas, which is what I thought forever. It's like, oh, I just have to come up with some new original ideas. But no, the best writing comes from the body. The best writing comes from spirit. And it, it, it's, it's almost like it channels through the bones, through the viscera of our stories. And then we corral that onto the page to share it with the world. Okay, this is very beautiful. The best writing comes from our body. It comes from something as deep as spirit. Let's say someone's listening and they're like, yeah, that's the kind of writing I want to be doing. And I'm trying to come up with ideas. And I want to make that shift how would you coach them? 
I would coach them inward. I would coach them first uh, into the body and through these practices, these various, like the body scans. So I have a, for example, a standing meditation. I call it the skeletal scan. And uh, it's all about the elemental self and really looking inward, 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 over and over again. And looking for the words there, not looking for the words in, um, you know, Mary Carr or Walt Whitman or Emily Dickinson or wherever. Um, but looking inward to your own body and finding language there, um, which takes a tremendous, tremendous amount of courage. Not that you won't also go to Emily Dickinson and Mary Carr and Walt Whitman and whoever else gets you to the page, as Ted Berrigan used to say, you know, read those writers that get you to the page. So it's both things. And I think for a lot of people, it's one or the other. I know for me, it was, I was so seduced intellectually by my favorite writers. Um, But then I was also at the same time, I was reading, at a certain point, I got turned on to these conversations with Nisargadatta Maharaj and you know, these various stories of the Buddha and Siddhartha and Herman Hesse. And, and then I started to see as it's, it's both and. It's not either or. Okay, well, let's go into another both and, I think, area, which is right at the very beginning of your book, Writing as a Path to Awakening. You talk about inquiring into this question, who am I? and mm-hmm. that we can practice neti neti. Not right, this, right. not this, that anything we could name isn't who we really are, neti neti. Right. And as I was reading that, I thought, doesn't that take people into a kind of wordless state? And yet yeah. here Albert is helping us develop as writers. Help me, right. help me, Albert. <laughs> right. Uh, so my favorite quote, which is also in there somewhere, uh, that comes from Nisargadatta Maharaj, which was not written. It was just overheard and translated. It says, I cannot tell what I am because words can describe only what I'm not. <laughs> which, is, which is gets at the essence of the paradox that you're talking about. Um, and so, we again, it's this, this idea of, of letting go of the words of writing the words, writing the story to let go of the story. Um, we do need words. Words can point. Words are very powerful in that way. So it's it, if we get if we get the words uh, sort of good enough, they can point towards a sense of possibility, a sense of our own creative geniusness, our sense of spiritual evolution. And where that can take us. So it's it's that the words are pointing, but you know it's like the pointing. What's that thing about pointing at the moon, and everyone's looking at the finger? Mm-hmm. I forget how that whole quote is. But so it's you know people again they're obsessing on the words, um, but it's not about the words. It's about the space between the words, right? Like um, John Cage used to talk about the space between the notes and the silence. And, of course, John Cage was a great practitioner of Zen. And so I love that whole idea of, of space, of, of redirecting your attention 
And it, it's so obvious, and yet it's so not obvious. Just because of our cultural conditioning, we love flashy, shiny, beeping things. Okay, I want to ask about one more paradox, sure. which is you devote an entire chapter of the book to the imagination mm, and yeah. the great joy that's possible in using our imagination. And you help people mm -hmm. activate, if you will, their imagination in, in all these different kinds of ways. And I thought, wait a second, this is a book about awakening. Aren't I trying to connect with something that's real, not going off on fantasy trips in my imagination? Uh -huh. But Albert, you're going to help me understand this. <laughs> that's right. So it's it the imagination is a it's a the the brain the mind is a great tool right and it's a it's a place to to explore and to to delve into and to swim around in but we can get stuck we can get caught in all those those beauties and those mysteries and and so the imagination is it's it's just a reflection of the mind and the mind is very useful but we get we get caught when we when we become too obsessed with the the objects of the mind and the objects of our imagination so we want to celebrate it but also have a little bit of distance from it and so i'm also i hope i'm not explaining away too much of the paradoxes because i think paradox is good right um, there's certain thing there's certain points where we just let the mystery be hmm. as that great song goes um, whose name the author of who i can't think of um, but is married to greg brown <laughs> anyways uh, so that's probably not the best answer but uh, because I don't want people to think, well, I'm not a fan of the imagination, um, but that, you know, we want to be delighted um, and even seduced by the imagination and cultivate the imagination and then at some point let go of the imagination. One of the things I appreciate, Albert, is I'm asking you some pretty tough questions, and you seem to be right there with me and enjoying yourself. At least I hope so. So thank you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is fun. Now, both meditation practice and the act of writing on a regular basis require a lot of discipline. Yeah. And you talk about this in the book, and you talk about your own epiphany, if you will, related to discipline being an inside job. So I'd love mm -hmm. to hear more about that as somebody who doesn't respond very well to the word discipline. Yeah. Well, discipline, yeah, it's a very charged, triggery word for me, too, having grown up with a Swiss-German nanny who was not only a fierce disciplinarian, but also uh, violent. Uh, and it, it is kind of, it has a controlly essence to it. Um, but one thing that I had to figure out and to learn was that there is some good to discipline. You know, I rejected discipline for a long time because of, I was terrified 
by it. You know, I just associated it in my mind with control and terror, honestly. Um, but then eventually I realized that all the most successful people in the world that I noticed, and by successful I mean people who were really living, like really having an impact, a positive, radiant impact on the world, were disciplined. They had this, they had a regimen, they, they committed. Um, and so I sort of wanted to figure out how do I get discipline? Can I get that from somebody? Can somebody teach that to me? Can they mm-hmm. give it to me? Because I didn't have it. Like my parents were not disciplined at all. They were very scattered. They were very lost. They were. They just did not have a a sense of their own um, confidence and their own commitment to or belief that they could change the world or have an impact in the world. Uh, so I, I did. I kept looking inward, and um, you know, it's it's not different. That I, I noticed that the people who meditated consistently actually woke up on some level. They transformed. They changed their lives. And the people who kept writing, they got books done. And there was something about this this act of completion that triggers greater self-confidence. And so I just set to completing a few things, you know, whether that was actually completing reading an entire book even a short book, or completing an entire poem, writing a whole poem out, finishing it. What was that like? You know, how is that different than abandoning a poem or abandoning a book halfway through? And it just it started feeling better, you know, incrementally over time. And the more I did it and the more I generated the more integrated and the more connected I got. And so then the association shifted from control and terror to insight and possibility. You write in the book that you found it's important not to just write or meditate when you're in the mood to do it. Uh, Oh, yes. (laughs) Right. Who's ever in the mood? Although, I don't know, I should say, I, you know, a lot of times we're not, but the older I get and the more I do it, that's the curious thing. You get more in the mood, and it just feeds on itself. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, no, it, it feels like an arduous thing, like another thing to check off the list, right? Oh, I've got to meditate. For Christ's sakes, i got a lot of stuff to do. You know, i got to feed the kids, i got to you know, clean the house. I got to get to work. And so we just, you know, it becomes another thing rather than air or food, you know, great nourishment. But um, the, the the more we do it, the more it becomes the necessity of being. So in your life now, do you have a disciplined, structured regimen related to both meditation and writing? Yeah, I would say so. 90% of the time, we're at 10% when just things, you know, life happens and you have to shift. But when I'm working on a writing project, I'm writing every day, usually between sort of 5.30 and, and 11 in the morning. And and if I'm not working on a writing project, then I'm working on an editing project. <laughs> so 
I'm I'm in these different modes of creation. Um, but it's it's a daily practice for sure. And then the meditation comes in too, daily, over and over and over again. Um, usually in the morning. That's just my that's my sweet spot. Although sometimes when I'm really cranking on a, a novel project and really generating a lot of imaginative ideas. You know, the mind is busy in the morning. And so I surrender to that and I meditate in the evening. And I let everything drain out back into the the earth. Um, so I sort of go with what's what's needed in the body. And everyone has to discover that process for themselves, I think. You know, a lot of times we want to look to people who have written books or who have meditated for a long time, like, oh, what's your practice? Maybe I can do that too. And maybe you can. But also, it's, I think it's important to look within and say, like, what are the rhythms of my body? What are the rhythms of my life? And how can I make this work for me? You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Albert, I want to read a quote from the book and have you comment on it that I think is pertinent to our discussion. And the quote is, I recently surveyed thousands of writers and would-be writers who are on my mailing list. And the Mm. number one thing they reported struggling with the most was time. And then you continue, remember, time is not something that you have or don't have. Time is something you create. So let's talk to that person who says, look, excuse me, Albert, kindly, I don't have time. And you're telling me time is something you create? Yes. Yeah. I mean, anytime you use that word, I don't have, or that phrase, I don't have, you're you're creating that limitation. I mean, the, the reality is that time is, it's a concept. It's a construct. It's something that we invent. And we just happen to be so used to it in our cultural conditioning that we sort of forget. We're like, oh, yeah, like nine o'clock is a fixed thing. It's a fixed concept. But it's not. It's, it's an invention. Somebody invented it a long time ago, and people have been using it repeatedly, and everyone agrees to it, so it becomes a fixed thing in the culture. And it's very useful you know, it keeps us organized and keeps us on task and keeps the whole world running as it does. Um, but it ultimately, it's an invention. And within the context of our lives, we can see into that invention and that how, you know, those pressures, those external pressures are self-created. And all it takes is getting up 15 minutes earlier. That's all it takes. And then suddenly you have more time. You can squeeze in 15 minutes to write every morning or 15 minutes to meditate. 
or five minutes to meditate and 10 minutes to write, however you want to break it up, um, however much time you're willing to, to allow yourself. Um, I know one of my favorite writers in the world, Cheryl Strayed, she, she just, she's a very busy family life, and she'll go to a hotel in her city for the weekend, for a long weekend, and she'll just go to the hotel and write, knock out 20,000, 30, 40,000 words in a weekend. She refers to herself as a binge writer. So she makes that time. She creates that time. And she very kindly but firmly communicates with her family and says, listen, I love you all very dearly, and this is nourishment for me. This is what I have to do. And so I'm going to go away for the weekend, just down the road here <laughs> to this hotel. I'm going to write. And so that's the way she does it. That's the way she creates it. Um, but yeah, time is, time is, it's a total perceptual invented thing. Mm-hmm. You've made a good case. <laughs> now let's talk directly to that person who's listening, who has the sense, you know, there's a book inside me. There might even oh. be books inside me. Yep. And yeah, I don't have the time, but I know it's a little fishy. I know I could make the time but I'm not making the time. And there's something else that's keeping me, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Maybe I'm not ready. And I know you work with people on this precipice Mm -hmm. of them coming forward and saying, okay, I'm really going to do this. And I wonder if you can talk some about what are the greatest obstacles people face right on this precipice and how you coach them to move through. Yeah, I mean, I think in some sense we are our greatest burden, you know, our conception of ourselves. Um, that's why I, I like to begin all my workshops and the book itself, actually, with the premise that we are a creative genius. You know, we are living in a field of possibility. We just have to keep realigning ourselves and reminding ourselves of that every day. And so when people get kind of caught up in the, I don't have time or something, you can't think about it. At a certain point, you just, you have to stop thinking about it. And if it's something that you want to do, you do it. You take action. You get physically embodied and you pick up a pen and you wrap your fingers around that pen and you attach it to the paper and you start moving your hand and your arm across that piece of paper. And you write what you need to write the story that you need to tell and you stop with the excuses you stop with the the reasons and you know and this isn't something that you can necessarily maybe just read in a book and all of a sudden oh cool okay i'm gonna really do it you know i mean my if i look at my own personal evolution it's it's been so many different things it's been the meditation practice. It's been the writing practice. It's been going to readings and getting inspired regularly. It's been connecting with creative community where I live. It's been reading, reading, reading. It's been going to therapy. It's been doing energy work. It's been getting massages. It's been listening to spiritual tapes and spiritual books. It's been going to workshops and actually being led through very powerful writing exercises, free writing exercises, where I don't think, I just write. And I don't judge, I just write. 
I don't self-criticize, I just write. And, you know, I was just teaching a workshop this past weekend. It was a yoga and writing intensive down at Asilomar. And people who've been writing for years were like, oh, my God. They, you know, they couldn't believe, publish authors who were writing poems because they weren't thinking about it. They weren't telling themselves over and over again, oh, I'm definitely not a poet. You know, people tell themselves these things constantly. And it's just nonsense. Well, yeah. I mean, Albert, I noticed when you said, you know, I start all my workshops and you also did start the book Writing as a Path to Awakening with this audacious statement, you know, you are a creative genius. We're all creative geniuses. Everyone is a creative genius. Yeah. Uh, you know, part of me said, yes, Albert, that's correct. We all have this potential. And another part of me, I'm just being honest here, kind of rolled my yeah. eyes and said, really? A creative genius? Really? All of us? Come on. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty bright picture of the world. But it you really is. believe it. No, it's not that I believe it. It's that I know it from direct experience. You know, I've been teaching writing first for with kids for, oh my God, almost 15 years and with adults the last eight years exclusively. And this is what I know. This is what I see. And it's not, you know, it's not a question of, you know, brilliant and genius. I know these are very loaded terms. Um, but by that, I mean that the full potentiality is there. It's not that, oh, wow, all of a sudden you're like, Faulkner or Emily Dickinson right out of the gate and that you're going to get published tomorrow. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that there is the potential for you to have a great impact on the world with your writing and your ideas if you are fully committed to engaging that and practicing that and, and getting beyond your mind and getting beyond your um, your self-doubt and your self-criticism and just meeting the page, meeting it where you are. And I see this over and over and over and over again. I see it in kids. I see it in adults. I see it in every cultural background. Uh, it, it's not, you know, and Elizabeth Gilbert was once a completely terrible, flailing writer, as was I, as was Faulkner, as was Emily Dickinson, as was all of them. But the only difference between them and us is that they kept at it. They kept doing it. They kept reading. They kept writing. They kept meeting the mystery of the universe with an open heart. And that made all the difference. Now, it's interesting that you mention reading. And yeah. you also talk about this in the book, that reading can actually be an important part of our writing process. And I thought to myself, shouldn't I stop reading and get that pen moving on the page? Why is he telling me reading's a good thing? I think I do tell people to stop reading at some point in that chapter. Yeah, I mean, I should have called this reading as a path to awakening. That might even be the subheading. Uh -huh. um, but it's reading is writing, writing is reading. You can't have one without the other. All the best, most interesting, dynamic, effective writers in the world are great readers. And sometimes you'll get this from people who say, I'm not really that into reading. I don't like to read that much. And I say, you're probably not going to have much success with your writing. It's just, that's just sort of the way it is. Because it, it, you'll never learn the different um, 
cadences, the musicality, the syntax, the, the possibility of how language can be used to convey an idea, to convey an experience. And so reading is absolutely essential. I love it. You're a fun person to talk to. <laughs> Good. So are you. You're asking these terrific questions. Okay. You write in a different section of the book, and I, I quite like this, so I underlined it. Writing and meditation are acts of courage. Showing mm. up for this moment is an audacious act. And I wanted you to unpack a little bit this idea of showing up for this moment is an audacious act. Yeah, I think in my experience, it, it really is. You know, being fully present, being open to the world is terrifying on a certain level. And especially if you're someone who has experienced trauma in your life. But even if you haven't, as someone put it this past weekend, just living in America is traumatic in this day and age. Mm -hmm. You know, just like with all the information overload and the, you know, not even to get into the politics and all that nonsense, but um, nonsense is very important to deal with. But, um, you know, it's hard. Life and showing up for life is hard. It, it takes a tremendous amount of courage just to be open and to be vulnerable to the world because things are coming at you and emotions are welling up inside of you. And it's the sensations can be really dramatic and really intense. And so I think that for people to, to look inside and to, to pause and to really to show up and be present in the world takes a tremendous amount of courage. And it seems to be more rare than ever, mm. you know, um, which is alarming. But that's why I'm so devoted to this work, because I want to keep reminding people this is the most important thing we can do as human beings. Because without changing consciousness and awareness and having that positive influence, we're really going to be kind of screwed as a species. Now, in talking about showing up for this moment as an audacious act, you referenced how for many of us we've had trauma in our life or just being alive today is uh, quite traumatic for many of us. And I know your own life story, you talk about it in a TED Talk, had quite a bit of early trauma. And I wonder if you can talk and share a little bit about that and also how writing has helped you find your way through your own life trauma. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I grew up in this, this household that was, you know, to distant alcoholic parents who weren't really up for parenting, so they hired this governess who was violent, extremely controlling and, and eventually violent towards my sisters and myself. And, you know, by 12, age 12, I started drinking. And that was my out. And by 19, I was a committed binge drinker. And there were numerous, I won't go into all the, the details that you, people can read about them and a little bit in this book, but also in the, my memoir, Beamish Boy, um, where there's all kinds of stories of, of getting into an awful lot of trouble and getting run over by a car and winding up, waking up handcuffed to a hospital bed with no idea how I got there and under arrest. And so the shame and the guilt and the terror 
trying to transcend that was was a huge huge thing and at some point you know i i i was in i had always felt drawn to art um, thank god for my my parents and their obsession with reading and with books and with music and with architecture so that's the one of the most beautiful things about my my parents though they were neglectful and alcoholic and all that stuff they were also um in, incredibly smart and cultured for lack of a better term and so i was surrounded by books and uh, i i grew up not far from new york city and so i was as a young child was taken into lincoln center and went to the theater and to the ballet and into films and and for the longest time i thought that was all just kind of dopey and not that interesting but at some point when i was lost and flailing i found myself applying to art school uh, because i didn't know what else to do with myself and i thought well i can't i'm not that great at reading and writing and all that stuff but you know i can take some pictures that seems pretty reasonable and i took pictures in high school and they weren't terrible so when i got to college they said what do you want to major in and i thought that was a kind of a curious question but i thought well can i major in taking pictures <laughs> and they said yes <laughs> so i did that and then i transferred to the university of colorado and and entered the their bachelor of fine arts program and met alex sweetman who's a photo historian and he liked some of my pictures and he said they were good and nobody had ever said that to me no one had ever said that anything i did on this planet was good or interesting and so then i just kept doing that you know i kept going towards that um creativity and it 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 was soothing you know it was because i could reflect on my world and i think that's when the healing began i knew that art was about on some level it was about healing whether i was looking outward there was an inevitable inward pull to that and i knew i loved photographs i knew i loved looking at photographs i loved seeing other artists create things and succeed in that um it just made my my heart shine however dimly at first hmm. now albert let's say someone's listening and they also have a traumatic history of some kind yes and they're thinking I know I need to write about it and find the healing in it. What would be your recommendations? Well, first of all, I would you know, I would encourage them to work with a professional, you know, work with a professional therapist to work through that trauma and get proper support for that. Um and and not just sort of talk therapy support, but also energy healing support. because in my experience trauma is very much of a a bodily it, it stays trapped in our bones and so that's the the key is to to release it energetically through the body with proper professional support uh and then i would would encourage them to write and to journal and to reflect and also to read and 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 read 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 the books that that move them that inspire them that that lift them up and give them the sense that wow that person transcended their trauma 
by doing X, Y, and Z. Mm. And maybe I too can do that. Um, but I just need to start tracking it, start seeing what I'm thinking about and what I'm feeling. And the best way to do that is to write it down and to keep writing. Now, interestingly, yeah, very good. Thank you. The final section of writing as a path to awakening helps us explore our own death through mm. both meditation and through writing practices. Mm. And it's a very beautiful section of the book. And in looking at writing exercises that we could do to explore our own death. You suggest things like writing your own obituary. And you mm -hmm. also ask people to reflect on a series of questions. And I thought mm -hmm. I might ask you a couple of those questions, if that's okay. Because <laughs> yeah. they're good sure. ones. I thought they're good ones. And they're also good ones that our listeners can ask themselves. But I'm going to mm -hmm. ask you. Okay. okay. Albert, how do you want to be remembered? <laughs> Oh geez, just I want to be remembered. I think as a a person who who showed up, you know, and 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 hopefully had uh, something kind of fun and wacky and curious to share with the world. Uh, I want to be remembered for for that sense of creative adventure and uh, and possibility. Beautiful. Now, there's five questions you asked, but I'm only going to ask you the first one and the fifth one. And I'll leave it for our listeners to go digging into writing as a path to awakening to discover yeah. the other three questions. But here's the last question that you throw out that could be a good writing exercise for people who are contemplating their own death. What held the most meaning for mm. you, at least so far, in your days on this earth? What has held the most meaning for you? Yeah. Geez, for me, uh, I think it's probably family, direct family time. You know, there's just quiet, connective, intimate moments with, you know, with my niece, with my sisters, um, with my wife, with the dog. Um, those little connective moments in nature. You know, I went just recently, uh, I went, we had a, there was a family thing with um, my, how do you say that, my step-grandmother, my grandmother-in-law, <laughs> who, uh, who was just moved to a facility out in the Central Valley, um, California Central Valley, which is, you know, in some ways if I had to, to use judgmental mind, I would say is kind of a, a dreadful place, you know. Uh, that's like me projecting and making some terrible, misguided judgment. Um, and so there I go with my baggage, um, sort of not really wanting to go and thinking, well, what's this gathering going to be like? I haven't really met many of these people, although it would be sweet to see Lenita and, and I get to see the nieces. Um, and it's just turned into the most beautiful weekend of my life. And just because of simple connections, you know, there was nothing profound about it. You know, we sat around and played pool and said hello and ate food. And it was just very simple, but that's the stuff that resonates so beautifully. 
you know, the love and the connection and the the emotional um, the emotional challenge of being with family. That for me is like the most resonant. Mm. Okay, Albert, just one final question. In the afterword to the book, mm-hmm. one sentence I pulled out says, allow failure to be your handmaiden. <laughs> yes. And I was wondering if you could talk about that in terms of your own writing life and how you have allowed failure to be your handmaiden. Oh, so difficult. So difficult is failure. And, you know, all I ever wanted in life was to be seen, right, to exist, because I was largely ignored as a kid, you know, and I wasn't, like, getting my ass kicked. Um, I was alone and just feeling like a shitty non-existent thing. And so when I first came to, to writing, a big inclination, quite honestly, was to be seen, to be included. And that meant being published. And so I kept sending work out and just kept getting rejected. And it was just like devastating. But because I had started in on the meditation practice, I had to sit with that devastation and that that um, sense of, of non-existence and that feeling of not being included. And it was very difficult. And yet I'm like, no, I, I, why is it that they get to participate and I don't? Like, are they really saying something that much more interesting, that much more important? And the answer I came to was no, they're not. And so I need to keep at it. I love doing this. And I love the whole process of writing and creating. I can't not do it anymore. And so I just kept submitting and kept participating and kept reading. And eventually things shifted. You know, a poem got published in Ziziva magazine after 50 submissions. <laughs> and in some ways, if you want to participate on a certain level, you know, you have to be committed that, that way. You have to be a, a little bit obsessive. And that goes for self-care, too. You know, be obsessive about your self-care, as obsessive as you are with your desire to participate and to be published. Mm-hmm. And be willing to fail. You know, just go allow the failure as this is it. If you're not failing, there's something awry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? There's something wrong. And I was going to ask you a bit about self-care. You know, that's a word that, and not to be too uh, gender-oriented here, but often you hear women talking about self-care. It's unusual to hear a man say, yes. you know, be rigorous with your self-care. So tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean... Literally, you know, taking good care of yourself, um, exercising, eating right, uh, making sure you get enough sleep, taking baths, you know, doing that sort of feminine nurturing stuff on yourself and get over your little menschy male, I don't need any care kind of a attitude and and surrender to that part of yourself. You know, I'm still baffled. Well, I'm not really, I, I, I kind of understand it, but... You know, it's all of my workshops, it's usually 90% women and 10% or less men. And I hope that this book reaches more men. I really do. I think our culture would benefit greatly from men who, 
who took more self-care and, and did more engaged in more self-reflection and were more vulnerable and more willing to expose that that side of themselves that is wounded that is hurt and so that that's a big part of the the commitment to this book that it reaches reaches more men mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Albert Flynn De Silver, and I have to say, I will remember you and remember this conversation that I had with someone who really showed up. You really showed up, Albert Flynn De Silver. Thank you so much. Oh, what an honor and delight, Tammy. Thank you so much for everything. And Albert's the author of a new book called Writing as a Path to Awakening a year to becoming an excellent writer and living an awakened life. Thanks everyone for listening and good luck with whatever creative project is truly in your heart. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey.